Apostle Paul says some pretty metal things sometimes. Like, I get the sense that if you looked into his eyes, it was this kind of like fiery look that told you he was not afraid of death or anything. And if you looked at him, uh, you might notice maybe uh, like a crooked arm, and he would tell you that that was where they stoned him and didn't grow back right. Or he might show you his back, where he was beaten with rods three times, five times whipped with 39 lashings. He might show you the welts on his body from countless beatings, maybe a few stab wounds from fear of robbers, a gaunt form from of exposure, homelessness, lack of food, lack of water. He'd show you his calloused feet uh, from all of the journeys that he had been on. He'd show you his head, which was sunburned from days of walking, constant journeys. And above all, he would show you the wrinkles on his forehead from the constant stress and anxiety of laboring with a church for years, pouring out love for these people only to have them turned on him by Judaizers and false teachers. Yes, for Paul, serving Christ was a physical endeavor, something that weighed on him. And that is because of the way that Paul viewed his service for Christ. This morning, we're going to be talking about a concept of, called cruciformity. It comes from a book that I've been reading recently. Uh, but the title of our sermon is called Daily Dying with Christ. And it comes from this idea that when Paul thinks about his service to the Lord, he views it through these eyes that every day with his whole life, his guiding focus, the main thing that is going on in his life is that he is living out the death of Christ. That all he needs for direction is to see the cross, to see the man suffering on the cross, and to know that is the commitment he has made. That is the life that he has chosen, that he is crucified with Christ. Let me show you a few texts uh, that show you what I mean. He says in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians 4, he says, We are always carrying in the body the death of, of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. He says in Romans 6, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Or in Philippians 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Today we're talking about dying with Christ. We're talking about living our lives after the pattern of a crucified Messiah. And that means many things for us, more than I can tell you in just a few minutes here. But I want to look at a few texts that answer 
two of these things. Two things that we put to death because we are living life following the pattern of a crucified Christ. The first thing we need to put to death is pride. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 18 and 19, and then verses 22 through 25. This is 1 Corinthians 1. He says in verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, And the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul says that when we choose to follow God. When we choose to follow Christ. We are choosing not only a glorified seated at the right hand of God Christ. But also a crucified Christ. Who died on a cross. The most humiliating of deaths. And when we follow him, we are following what is to the world madness, to the Jews a stumbling block. So the first sub-point of of abandoning our pride, putting to death our pride, is accepting the madness of the cross. That it's not just that following Jesus, the world is going to view us as foolish, but maybe just a little bit insane. Uh, I'm reminded of... A character in the book To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, which if you haven't read it, it takes place in Alabama in the 1930s. And there's a character in that book named Dolphus Raymond. And Raymond is a white man in a very uh, racially charged town, but he enjoys the company of black people. And in order to not have to explain himself, he finds it easier to pretend to be the town drunk than to explain to people that he believes people need to be treated equally. Now, there's a lot in this example not to follow, but I think it clearly illustrates what we're trying to say. That when we choose equality, justice, love, any of these qualities that Jesus teaches us to take up, that the world is going to view us as a little bit crazy, a little bit mad. And that bearing the shame of a man who died in the most humiliating of ways is par for the course as we take up our cross to follow Jesus daily. The people are going to see us and they're going to say, that person, I don't understand. Foolishness, a stumbling block, madness. That is who we are now. As we choose to follow God, the world is going to view us as crazy. And it's hard to be prideful. It's hard to be seeking glory when the world thinks that you're crazy. But that is what we have chosen. That is the path we are following, a humble, crucified Christ. 
Similarly, as we talk about pride, we accept madness, but we also accept weakness. In verse 1 of chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, Paul explains the way that he teaches. And he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says that he came to preach not a fun, catchy message, but a crucified Christ. And he didn't come with lofty speech or powerful rhetoric He came in weakness. He came in fear and trembling. He came preaching a message in such a way that when people looked at Paul, when they heard the message, the power of the message is not in Paul, but in Christ. As he says in verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Of God, And this parallels nicely what he said just a few verses earlier in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. That when we consider who we are, we're not amazing, strong, noble birth people. We're just ordinary people. And we don't come with some superhuman strength. We come with normal human strength. And yet, by, our, by the power of God working in us, amazing things happen. But the power is not ours, it is God's. And so, as we abandon our pride, as we put to death our pride and accept our madness, we are also accepting the wisdom of God. And as we accept our human weakness, we are also magnifying the power of God. And one more thing to say about pride is that we also accept a certain powerlessness. Uh, As you'll turn over to Philippians 3, we accept a powerlessness to free ourselves from the effects of our sin. We admit humbly that every effort we've ever made up to this point to try and justify ourselves is futile. As Paul says in in Philippians 3, and he'll spend the first seven verses just explaining all the stuff that he did, how uh, if you really want to get down to it, I mean, Paul is, is justified as anyone could possibly be. I mean, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a zeal, a persecutor of the church, uh, blameless before the law. I mean, you want to count up qualifications, Paul can stack them with the best. But he says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul has this single-minded focus. I love verse 11. By any means possible to attain the resurrection of the dead. But Paul understands that there's only one way to make that happen. And it is not through all of these things that he's done up to this point to justify himself. Because that's not going to work. And he has to have the humility to admit that he is powerless to save himself from the effects of sin. And so Paul chooses rather to count all those things that he has gained as rubbish. He chooses instead in verse 10 to share in Christ's sufferings and become like him in his death. Why would Paul do that? I mean, it doesn't sound like very much fun. I don't want to become like anybody in death, you know, naturally speaking. And yet, Paul does this because he has a vision. And because he knows in verse 9 that this is what he wants, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul looks at a crucified Christ and he says, that's my answer. That is the way to break free. And as we reflect the dying of Christ, the humility of Christ in our own lives, we have to have the humility to realize that our power is is not our own. It, it, It has to come from God. And that our ability to rescue ourselves from our sins is all based in our faith in God. That we cannot do it that we need him. And so we humbly throw ourselves at the feet of a crucified Christ. There's another passage very similar to this passage in Philippians that we'll turn to real quick in Galatians 2. Galatians 2 also has this idea that there's nothing I can do. Uh, All of my own attempts at righteousness are no good. Uh, The only thing is faith in Christ and following a crucified Messiah. In Galatians 2, we'll read verses 18 through 21. Paul says, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. He's talking about breaking free from the law. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He says, the law, my prior righteousness, it counts for nothing. And we have to have the humility, the putting to death of our pride to recognize our powerlessness against the powers of sin. But also to realize Jesus is the answer. That being crucified with Christ, that is the way to break free. And so as we choose to die with Christ, as we choose to view the cross as our guiding light for life, the commitment that we have made, then we have to put to death our pride and accept the madness of the cross, to accept the weakness Uh, on the views of all the people of this world, to accept our own powerlessness to break free and totally to lean on Jesus for the answer.
Jesus for wisdom, Jesus for power, because that is the answer. We also put to death something else. Uh, We put to death our will. And this comes in a variety of ways, uh, and I will speak to two of them. Uh, The first is that when we put to death our our will, when we choose to follow a crucified Christ, we got to put to death our comfort. I mean, just as the birds of the air have nests and the foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Like a life of following Jesus is a hard life. And it's a life that is going to mean that we don't always get to do the things that we want to do, the things that would make our life easier, because we made a commitment to Jesus. But also, when we give up our will, we give up our will to sin, that there are times in our life where we really want to do the wrong things. And when we choose to follow Jesus, when we choose to imitate him, and the fact that he gave up his own will while on earth to serve the Father, so we also must do that. So we give up our will for comfort and for sin. Let's talk about comfort first. Uh, And this, if you'll turn to Philippians chapter 2, first manifests itself in total obedience. Philippians chapter 2, we'll read verses 5 through 8. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is a a vital text when we talk about this idea of dying with Christ. But I want to hone in as we talk about obedience on verse 8. Because notice that he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And you have to ask yourself, how far are you willing to go in obedience to God? Because Jesus gave us a perfect example of full obedience to God as far as it would take him. And there are some other texts uh, in association with suffering about this idea of uh, enduring or being obedient even to the point of death. I'll show you a couple of those. Uh, First in Revelation, he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Similarly, in Hebrews 12, he says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Notice that he, uh, like Paul, points out that Jesus is our example of suffering to the point of death. And you have to ask yourself, how far is my obedience going to take me? Because there are going to be times in life, uh, and of course, you know, we, we live in a world, uh, especially here in the U.S., that's largely Judeo-Christian, and so our madness doesn't stand out as strong, and our obedience doesn't often lead to the point of death. But it could. And you have to ask, when there are tangible effects of my service to God, when my, uh, when my life is in jeopardy, when my job is in jeopardy, when my home, uh, 
My livelihood is in jeopardy. What do I do? How far am I willing to obey God? How dangerous is it going to get before I throw in the towel and say I'm done? Because when we're following Jesus, when we take up the mantle of perfect obedience to God, we don't get to say no. We keep going. We follow a perfect, full obedience and don't let anything get in our way. That's the commitment we've made. A commitment to give up our will, to give up our comfort in perfect obedience to God. Similarly, we see this idea of self-denial. And this is, of course, present in Philippians 2 as well. But I want to look in 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians 4. I used to love the way that Paul talks about himself and the other apostles. In 1 Corinthians 4, we're going to read verses 9 through 13. 1 Corinthians 4, 9 through 13. He says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul, he views himself and the other apostles. He says, when we're following God, this is the level of self-denial that we take on. Food, the normal uh, pleasures of life, if they come in the way of God, we cut them out. We're not seeking glory. We're not seeking people to appreciate us. Look, we are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And this is, I mean, a bit euphemistic. Uh, Because what this really means is that Paul and the other apostles are what you scrape off the bottom of your shoe when you walk through muddy streets and there's no plumbing. Uh, This is what Paul is. This is how he views himself. Subhuman. And you imagine, uh, you know, what does that look like? How do we exhibit that sort of life? What does that look like as we serve a crucified Christ? Well, Paul shows in this text a contrast. He says in verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. He says, there's a problem, a break between who we are and who you guys are. And it is clear that you guys have not put to death your pride, that you are seeking strength and wisdom of the world. And that's that's not going to fly. You got to change that. And so how do we change that? Well, I think first we can look at uh, maybe the example of Jesus when he washed the disciples' feet on the night of his betrayal. And you have to realize how scandalizing that is. I mean, washing someone's feet, that's like a servant's job or maybe a woman's job if you're a poor house. Like, this is, this is not something that Jesus should have done. And it offends Peter that Jesus gets down to wash his feet. And I think, I just like that idea that uh, when you start offending people, with how humble you are, you're like in the right ballpark. I'm talking about the idea of maybe going to your, your, your elderly neighbor's house and uh, their bathroom is filthy, their back hurts, they can't reach down, and you go and you help them clean their bathroom. 
I'm talking about when you're at the IHOP and you look over and you see a man in a suit and a man in rags sitting across the table from each other because that man decided to stop for the hungry, please give me food sign. I'm talking about putting aside our pride to the point that it is so inconceivably strange to the world because we are guided by a different set of principles. I was reading a book uh, about business about a year ago, and it talked about a man who, he owned a used car lot, and he did some analyses on the way that cars were selling in his lot. And he came to the realization that rich people are better at haggling than poor people are, which led to a real problem because the people who couldn't afford cars were paying more for cars than the people who just had money to spend. And he said, that's a problem. And rather than wisdom of the world, trying to figure out a way to get the best salesman to haggle the best deal, instead, he just cut all the prices. He said, there is no haggling. Everyone gets it for the same low price. And did he lose money? Absolutely. And were people probably confused by his business principles? For sure. Because, but he was not guided by money principles. He's guided by kingdom principles. He was guided by the fact that there was injustice and he could correct it. And there are going to be times in our lives, similar to what we just talked about, where you know, our livelihood is threatened, where the normal principles of life would lead us in one direction, but wisdom from above leads us in a different. Where our money, our safety comes in question. And we have to ask ourselves, which way am I going to go with this? Am I more interested in my pride, in my money, my retirement? Or am I really seriously following Jesus, living out the life of a crucified Messiah? Am I the scum of all things? And if we are falling short, then we got we to gotta get there. We got to grow. We got to see the image of a crucified Christ and move toward that level of obedience, that level of self-denial, that level, as we'll see, of suffering. And of course, this is kind of implicit in the whole thing, but I just want to make explicit what we've been talking about so far. In Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, Paul says in verses 24 through 26. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that, he, that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery for, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Paul says, this is my job. I am spreading the word. I am revealing the mystery that has been hidden for ages. But a critical part of this is that Paul understands that this is going to mean suffering for him. And that just as he is fulfilling the mission of Christ to be a light to the Gentiles, so also he is fulfilling the life of Christ, a life of suffering, a life of rejection. He is filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the body, that when we choose to follow a crucified Messiah, we should expect to suffer. It is guaranteed. 
in, in Timothy. Let me wrap up this whole comfort idea with one more text, this time in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4. It's a lengthier reading, but I'm, it's, it's really good, guys. 2 Corinthians 4. Let's start in verse 7. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that their surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in your bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Skip down to verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul says, this is my life, persecuted, perplexed, but not crushed always carrying about the death of Christ in our bodies. Because guess what? We know that even if this journey leads us to death, that we don't have to fear, like Hamlet in the great Shakespeare play, what happens when we slough off these mortal coils. Rather, we know what happens on the other side. We know that instead of these transient things, instead of this life of suffering and pain and disappointment, there is an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. We know that there is something eternal. And as we live out this life, a life of rejection, a life of suffering, a life of homelessness, that we have somewhere waiting for us where we will be eternally accepted by our Father into a home with him. That's why we fight. That's why we keep going. That's why we give up our comfort in this life because we see Christ Jesus and his path from the grave to the right hand of the Father and we say, that, that's where I want to go. That's where I want to be. And so if our journey takes us to the grave, if our journey takes us through all sorts of terrible ordeals, that's all right. That's the path we chose because that's, its end is God in heaven, and that's where we want to be. Let me go one more sub-point here. I want to talk about how when we die with Christ, we give up our will to sin. We've got two texts left. The first is Colossians 3. And we'll come back uh, more to Colossians 3 in uh, my invitation talk in a minute. But Colossians 3, read the first four verses here. And Paul kind of sets the stage this whole chapter. It's really about a new life with Christ. But he says in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. 
He says, you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ. And this is what you got to do. Since you've been raised with Christ, set your mind on things above where Christ is. You got a new perspective now. That old man, he's, he's gone. And that's what he says in verse 5. Put to death what is earthly in you. And he lists sexual immorality. He talks about anger. He talks about greed. All that stuff, divisions. That's stuff of the past. That's stuff of the dead man. But now, now we are a living man. Now we have a new life, a heavenly perspective. And that changes us. Because we are all one in Christ, as it says in verse 11. And so we put on compassionate hearts, verse 12. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience. He talks about love. He talks about unity. These are the traits of our new life. So there's an old man, a dead man, a man that we have long said goodbye to. And that man was embroiled with sin. But now, now we have a new life, a life that is not controlled by sin, a life that is controlled by God. And there's going to be temptations. I mean, think about like the witness protection program. I mean, there are people who when they start their new life, it's too much for them. And they get scared and they want to reach out to people from their old life. But that stuff is dangerous. And the same thing can happen to us. We can think, oh, you know, just a, a little, little call into my old life is, is not going to lead to much. But it, but it does. But it's scary and it, is, it, is, it leads in a bad direction. We have to put the old man to death. We have to put our life of sin behind us. Because there are problems there. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. Continuing this idea of putting the old man to death. And, and Romans 5, he talks about grace. And he talks about, uh, you know, what, what are we going to do now that we're living with Christ? He says in verse 1 of chapter 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. <laughs> How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know? That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried with him, therefore, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That that old man is dead. Now we are seeking newness of life, something new. And just as we you know, continue with this witness protection allegory here, there is a reason you go into the witness protection program. It is because your old life, there's something dangerous there. There is a present danger that you are trying to get away from that you feel like, you know, kind of a faking your own death is the only way to get free because there's, there's real trouble back there. And the same thing is true for us about our life of sin. Look what Paul says in verses 6 and also verses 12 through 14 about the previous life of sin and its rule over us. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your bodies to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness for sin will not have so for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace he says when you put that old man to death you cut the chains of sin and you are now free and yes we serve god and that 
is its own kind of service, its own kind of slavery. But it's a slavery we have chosen. And it's a slavery that is better. As he'll continue on in, in chapter 6, he says, you were under the slavery of sin, but there was no fruitfulness in that. But now, now we serve a God who was willing to die for us. Now we serve a much better master. And so we willingly put to death our will, our desires to do sinful things, because we understand that there is a, there's something better out there. We understand there's a better master, and we want to serve him. We don't want to be under the chains of sin. We don't want to be in slavery anymore. We want freedom. And that freedom can only be found in serving our God. And so I said there are you know, a million points I could make from this, and I, I could go on and on. But these two points, I think, really encompass this commitment we have made to serve God. That when we choose to follow a crucified Christ, and we put to death the pride of this life because we give up the wisdom of the world to become fools to the world in order to gain the wisdom of God. And we are willing to be weak in this world because we want the power of God. And we are willing to accept that we are powerless to break free from our sins And so we throw ourselves in faith at the feet of a crucified Christ. And we give up our will, our will to be comfortable as we obey to the point of death, as we choose total self-denial, as we choose a life of suffering, a life of giving up our sin, our old man. It's a huge step, but it is the commitment that we have made. And every time, each week, that we come together and partake of the Lord's Supper, we are looking at that crucified Christ. We are looking at the cross. We are looking at the commitment that we have made. And so, in just a moment, as we gather around this table and we take the dying body of our Lord into ourselves, we are reminded that this is our life a life of death, of rejection, of suffering, just as our Lord died and suffered. Because we want, by any means necessary, to attain the resurrection of the dead. And so we follow God, becoming united with Christ in his death. Let us think on these things as we now partake of the Lord's Supper. Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if any has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. I just want to say that Rudeness has no place in the life of a Christian. That when we're supposed to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, unity, love, put to death, angry speech, that there's, there's no excuse for, for me or anyone else who, who chooses to go down that path. And 
I know it's, it's, a, it's simple, but it, it's difficult because life is long. And there are things in life that get frustrating, things in life where we are having harder time than others. And yet, we got to make the choice to see Christ in our lives. And I'll point out to you something. My, my main talk was about how a cruciform life directs us in our relationship to God. That we give up sin, we obey him, and we give up our pride. But this one and uh, what I said before the, the Lord's table, are, or before the collection, are a more horizontal aspect of cruciformity. That Jesus died in a humble way to serve others. And so we must serve others. Jesus lived a life of mercy. As he has forgiven us, so we must forgive others. And so we must take up his mantle both in the way that he served God and also in the way that he served others so that we too can have a life that is defined by obedience to God and defined by these heavenly characteristics, this heavenward perspective, and not the earthly things that frustrate us from day to day. And so, here in a moment, we are going to sing a song, and I hope that as you've been reflecting through this, this whole service about the way that God calls us to surrender all, that way that God calls us to die with Christ, that we would take up that mantle. And if you are having difficulties with that, if you've, if you've reached roadblocks and you need our help, our prayers, we would love to help you. Or if there's something else we could do, like if you've never begun this journey, I know it's daunting, but I promise you that it is worth it. That heaven, eternal weight of glory, home with God, these are the things we are striving. And for for that, everything in this life becomes a light, momentary affliction. And if you would like to begin your journey with God, we would love to help you. If you have any need, please come as we stand and sing.